From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. You couldn't write an economic history of the past 50 years without multiple mentions of Paul Volcker, who died this week at the age of 92. If you think about it, he played a key role in not one, not two, but three of the financial landmark events of the past half century. He advised President Nixon on the decision to leave the gold standard, which led to the collapse of the whole post-war Bretton Woods system in 1971. Then, most famously, as chair of the Federal Reserve for much of the 80s, he forced the US central bank to do what it took to confront inflation, even when what it took was a deep recession and a soaring dollar. And then he was still around in 2008, advising President Obama on how to cope with the fallout from the global financial crisis, devising new rules for banks, which remain in diluted form today. That's a massive legacy, which I'm going to discuss with Paul Volcker's co-author, Bloomberg's Christine Harper, in a few minutes. But first, India. Now, India is a lot to get your head round, even for so-called experts. You'll surely know that it's got more than a billion people living in it, but along with that it has 23 major languages, 85 political parties and 300 ways of cooking potato. It also has an ambitious Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, who, like President Trump, has thrived by breaking with traditional models of how a politician should behave. But now the economy's hitting trouble, and so is he. In a few minutes, I'll ask our India economist, Abhishek Gupta, whether Prime Minister Modi has the capacity to turn things round. But first, Bloomberg economy reporter Anirban Nag has this report from the diamond mines of west-central India. Take diamonds, Hollywood A-listers, and a $2 billion fraud, and you have all the ingredients of made-for-TV scandal that had all India paying attention. So there you have it uh, now, uh, Enforcement Director raiding the offices of Nirav Modi, uh, the famous jeweler who's really at the center of this entire scandal at the Punjab National In 2018, police raided the offices of diamond mogul Nirav Modi to investigate an alleged scam involving fake guarantees and sham transactions. Modi, who's not related to Prime Minister Narendra Modi, was once a jeweler to the stars. He had boutiques in London, Hong Kong and Mumbai. Nirav Modi has denied wrongdoing. He's currently being held in the UK and fighting extradition to India. Meanwhile, India's renowned precious stone dealers 
are still reeling from the repercussions. After it was first alerted of the bank loot on the 16th of January, it took Punjab National Bank almost a month to understand the extent and gravity of an in-depth... India's low-cost and high-skill labor has turned the country into a hub of global jewelry. India exports 75% of the world's polished diamonds, according to the industry's Export Promotion Council, many of which end up in engagement rings and diamond bracelets sold at jewelers like Tiffany's. Real is rare. Real is a diamond. According to the government, the sector employs nearly 5 million workers, accounting for almost 7% of GDP. But the industry has been in serious trouble since the scandal broke. Workers are losing jobs and businesses are shutting shops. If anything is to go by this way, Prime Minister Modi has little chance of achieving his goal of reaching $1 trillion in annual exports over the next five years. It's also weighing on the broader economy. So what went wrong? For answers, we went to the diamond hub of Surat. The city is a three and a half hour train journey north from India's financial capital, Mumbai. It's home to over a million people employed in the sector, including the skilled artisans that polish the diamonds. Many of them migrate from elsewhere in India, attracted by the prospects of higher income. Babubai Kataria started off as one such artisan about four decades ago, and he now heads the Surat Diamond Association. He wears a yellow and red thread around his right hand, an amulet worn by many of India's Hindus to protect someone from trouble. It's a protection that his industry really needs right now. I have seen many slowdowns in my more than 40-year career in the diamond industry. The last time it was severe was in 2008, but conditions had normalized after a couple of months. But this time, the slowdown has dragged on for 7-8 months now and has hurt our business immensely. Avadesh Pandey is a skilled artisan with nearly two decades of experience. Five months ago, he reported to work at one of the thousands of diamond polishing factories only to find the doors locked. The owner of the company had pulled down the shutters overnight and fled without telling any of his 40 workers. We were unable to track down the owner for comment. Pandey, who's 33, moved to Surat from across the country, following the footsteps of his elder brother. Before losing his job, he used to earn the equivalent of around $315 a month, roughly double the country's per capita income. But Pandey is now borrowing money from friends to pay the rent on his one-room house and the tuition for his two kids. The owner shut shop without paying us our monthly salary. I have been roaming the streets in the past month and more trying to get another job. I leave in the morning and come back home in the evening, but no luck. Some factories say they don't have demand. Some say they don't have rough diamonds. 
The outcry following the Nirav Modi scandal has created an atmosphere of distrust between banks and jewelers. Chirag Virani is a second-generation director at B. Virani & Company, a diamond-cutting and polishing firm in Surat. He talked to us in his glass-walled office above the factory floor. Behind him hangs his MBA diploma from Canada's Ryerson University. So liquidity crunches is one of the biggest problems that, that kind of has, you know, uh, made this crisis even worse. Yeah. So because of these cer certain uh, companies that do unethical practices, right, bank have, I think all of a sudden they've said that we don't want to give credit to the diamond industry because there are, there are many cases, you know, that... Uh... In addition, the trade war between China and the U.S. has put a dampener on sales, Virani said. While the U.S. is the biggest consumer of Indian diamonds, a lot of stones transit through China for jewelry manufacturing or wholesale trading. With the U.S. cutting its purchases of Chinese goods, the Indian gem industry has felt the impact. So although India is not part of any global supply chain, exports have been hit, dragging down overall economic growth to 4.5% in the third quarter its lowest in six years. Back in Surat, it's hard times as employment in the industry has fallen and incomes for skilled artisans has been reduced by more than 70% in the past few months, according to industry groups. For Avadesh Pandey, the skilled artisan, it's a bleak and hard struggle, mirroring much of the slowdown in the economy. <laughs> I am so stressed right now. If this environment continues, then I'll have to consider leaving the industry and go back to the village and work in the fields for much less money. For Bloomberg News, I'm Anir Banna. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So Abhishek Gupta is Bloomberg's India economist. He's got a bit famous uh, in the Indian market circles for disagreeing with other economists in Mumbai over what the Central Bank of India is going to do next. And I should say he's more often right than wrong. Um, Abhishek, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Stephanie, for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. So those of us who are not necessarily following every twist and turn of the central bank's policies or indeed the, the government of India's policies, you know, we hear that story there from Anubhan Nag about 
how the diamond industry has been affected by trade wars and by the slowing of the, the Indian economy. If we step back from the day-to-day of central bank policy and what's going on month-to-month with the economy, you know, most people will have noticed, I think, when Narendra Modi came to office in India in 2014. He got re-elected again um, this year. There was a lot of talk about major reform and putting the economy on a completely different trajectory. We have seen reforms, but if you look at the state of the economy, it doesn't look that great. What's happened? Stephanie, I think that that's, an, uh, that's a great question. And uh, indeed, uh, if we look at Narendra Modi's track record over the last few years, he has certainly delivered on a lot of significant structural reforms, I'll say. But the way I think about these reforms is that they aren't necessarily growth-enhancing, uh, at least in the uh, short run. They improve efficiency and productivity over the medium term. But what's exactly happening in, in the near term, uh, for instance, let's just pick up one of the reforms like Narendra Modi uh, delivered on a new bankruptcy law for India. And under this law, what's happening is that, for instance, bad assets would now be changing hands. So uh, from an old promoter to a new promoter. And that and sometimes things get delayed in, in the legal process. And stuff like this would negatively impact uh, the economic activity of that six unit uh, in the short run. And similarly for other reforms as well. In, in the short run, in the initial years of these reforms, uh, this, that's, uh, there's a transition phase which kind of slows things down. Having said that, my sense would have been that over the past few years, things should have already started looking up by now, but that has not been the case. And, and I kind of put the blame more on not sufficient monetary easing uh, rather than not uh, more uh, reforms. Uh, so clearly, I think uh, monetary policy could have done a lot more to support government structural reforms parallelly, but that hasn't been the case uh, so far. Yeah, and it's true. You have had you you were very critical, and particularly of the previous head of the uh, Reserve Bank of India. Um, and when um, when the when Modi effectively got rid of him, uh, you know, often when when governments interfere with uh, who's going to run the central bank, there's a lot of concern in the markets about the independence of the central bank being violated. But it was striking that. Um, there was not that kind of reaction from the markets when that happened, perhaps because investors agreed with you that the, the bank had been too tight. Uh, yes, certainly that has been the case. In fact, one of the key reasons holding back uh, India's economy is the weak state of uh, India's shadow banking sector. It, it, there are these non-bank finance companies in India which essentially are extending credit to consumers and uh, housing finance companies. And these companies were quite negatively impacted uh, due to a liquidity crunch uh, which was created in the economy in late 2018 under the earlier RBI governor, Rajit Patel. Uh, Over the last year, the new central bank governor has reversed some of those policy mistakes and we have seen credit spreads come down for uh, the better rated companies, but some of the weaker rated companies the, the credit spreads are still widening, and, and that is a financial shock that needs to be eased. I mean, we, we, we heard a bit in that piece about the pain that some of that, the financial squeeze is causing in, in 
the diamond sector and for some for some in that um, region. But obviously, this is an enormously diverse economy. Um, the rural sector is particularly important, not just economically, but politically. If you're um, sitting in a rural area, uh, how, have, how have you really felt the impact of Prime Minister Modi? Or maybe you haven't felt that much difference? That's a separate discussion altogether. So, I mean, uh, if you look at Prime Minister Narendra Modi's policies, he has also reinvented himself uh, in, the, in, in, in his political party, the BJP, in terms of delivering more welfare-oriented policies for the rural poor. In fact, if you uh, sort of talk about uh, giving free gas cylinders and gas connections, that, that's been a very popular policy. Constructing toilets, that has been another major campaign of his and uh, besides that, he's also uh, increased electrification in rural villages and opened uh, bank accounts for, for the rural poor. And just this year, uh, he had announced an income support package for farmers. So I think he has done a lot uh, for, for the rural poor. However, the impact of that has been missing in terms of consumption. But, but broadly, the, the rural economy has benefited from Narendra Modi's policies. And if you speak to taxi drivers in India who kind of come from some of these rural villages in, in, in smaller towns, they do uh, confirm that uh, either they themselves and their families or their extended families, people have benefited uh, from Narendra Modi's policies. So, so he is popular uh, in, in, in rural India as well. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I, I I guess people from a distance will be wondering. I mean, he's a he's a prime minister who's been controversial often outside of India for his um, treatment of people in in Kashmir. He's he's violated uh, human rights in some ways, or has been criticised for that. He's also um, not always been a fan of of, of press freedom. I think uh, investors have sort of weighed that against his ability to get the economy going. Um, But how important is it for his future to really change the performance of the economy? Or is is he in a strong enough now position politically that he just needs to avoid a big recession? I think that, that that's a very important question that, that hits straight the point in terms of what will drive his re-election in 2024. Um, if you look at the first year of his second term, he has had great success in terms of delivering policies and legislation that appeals to his majority in the voter base, uh, be it, as you said, uh, the abrogation of Article 317 in Kashmir, on the Supreme Court uh, ruling in favor of uh, a temple um, uh, or uh, the, the current uh, citizenship amendment bill, which is uh, which just got passed yesterday uh, in, in the parliament, uh, which uh, discriminates against Muslims. Uh, so um, all, all these kind of things uh, do appeal to his voter base and uh, have maintained his popularity with the masses. But my sense is that this is not what is going to count in 2024. And I think even he understands the importance of reviving the economy because he had uh, initially in 2014 run on the agenda of development and uh, uh, he needs to bring economic prosperity and and bring jobs for for the young demographic force which is coming into the job market. And that is why he has been focusing a lot on this $5 trillion, uh, economy. 
Well, we will watch and wait. Abhishek Gupta, thank you very much. Thanks. I said something about Paul Volcker at the beginning of the programme, who's died uh, this week. But someone who got to spend a lot of time with him in the last few years is Bloomberg's own Christine Harper, who's editor of Markets magazine, but also wrote with Paul Volcker um, a memoir, uh, Keeping at It, The Quest for Sound Money and Good Government, which only came out a year ago. Christine, I know you've you've written and had conversations with people in the last few days since Paul Volcker died. I guess one question to ask you is what the, about the difference between the legend of Paul Volcker, who I certainly found uh, quite scary the few times that I interviewed him, not least because he was so tall, um, and the man that, that you got to know in, in writing this book, because it didn't quite work out the way you thought it was going to go. Yes, I would say that's true. And I, my uh, understanding is that most people who have had uh, some personal dealings with him, have come away with the same conclusion, which is that he has this very forbidding public persona. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the, the photography um, taken while he was Fed chairman or the, or the caricatures that were drawn of him, it was always as a sort of Olympian godlike figure glowering down at the mere mortals who were, you know, <laughs> screwing up the planet. Um, and so he did have this, uh, he had this kind of Old Testament quality to him, but... Once you met him in person, he was absolutely a sweetie pie. <laughs> he was one of those people who seemed like gruff and could use that fearsome persona to sort of achieve outcomes he wanted and take on, you know, people or institutions he felt weren't living up to their requirements, but he loved people and he was he was actually quite shy and he was very humorous and he was unbelievably kind. So when I first met him, I was, I think like anybody, quite nervous. And he instantly won me over. He was very funny, loved telling stories, chuckled a lot, was always smiling. Nothing like what I expected. And as I got to know him more, part of what I really enjoyed talking to him was, of course, he had amazing stories about knowing everybody from you know, the leaders of basically every country. He served under six presidents. You know, he's he's had this kind of incredible career, but but he also loved to talk about the crossword puzzle or he was a passionate home cook and he would talk about the recipes in the New York Times and you know, when he found a editing error he would he would relish that he'd found something like that. Um he was really fun to be around and really pleasant and kind and uh and I think in some ways, you know, he, he stood for for the people in what he tried to do publicly. He always put himself as somebody who wanted to take on corrupt influences and, and make the government better and make the economy better for for the for the people. But he really did love people. He you know, he took the regular city bus to and from his office until he was ninety years old. He didn't put himself apart. He he really saw himself as a public servant. I thought I was smiling at one of the comments in the obituaries about him often having shiny suits. You could imagine the Wall Street people being a bit sniffy about him. Oh yeah, not he, having he, spent money on his suits. When he was Fed chairman, you know, famously he sort of got a little studio apartment in a building close to the Fed that was basically all, 
you know, college students living there. <laughs> and he, he, he had, a, I think, a table, a chair, a bed, and some milk crates. And he would take his uh, laundry to his daughters, who lived nearby, to get it done every week. And, you know, that's because his wife was stayed up in New York and was, was quite ill, and she was taking care of their son, who had some disabilities. And she didn't want to move, so he just lived like this bachelor and flew back home every weekend. He really <laughs> didn't care about things. I mean, I remember him once telling me he thought all of the furniture in his apartment, which was quite a nice apartment in New York, that he bought at the bottom of the real estate market in 1973 or something, all of that furniture was probably, you know, 50 years old or something. He didn't, he didn't really care. <laughs> um, he cared about people. He cared about um, principles. Um, he cared that society do right by people, but he, he, wasn't, he wasn't materialistic. He wasn't selfish. Hmm. I was um, I was appalled. There was an event a few years ago that I was speaking at. It was a sort of private thing of people thinking about the global economy. And I was appalled when I saw the program that I was supposed to be co-presenting with Paul Volcker. And then I rapidly realized that it was actually quite liberating because it wouldn't matter at all what I said because people would really only be interested <laughs> in what he said. But what did you find? I mean, did you find that he was actually quite cheerful oh, and yes. fun to be with? And it was also increasingly uh, he had... Uh, and we've spoken about this in the past. I mean, he was getting on, and he certainly, and he had his voice uh, was definitely, you know, reflected his age. So sometimes when you're interviewing him, you, at least the first time I interviewed him, I found it sort of disconcerting that I was ex I was expecting this person to play a crucial role in whatever piece I was doing and deliver this great interview, and yet he seemed, you know, he was in his late 80s, and would he possibly deliver? But then, of course, you. The moment he started talking, you realized that he had not only really prepared for the interview, but had incredibly wise and sharp things to say that you wouldn't have got from anyone else. So I always I did found it a pleasure that you had to, as you say, you have to get past that rather intimidating um, demeanor where he did often seem to be sort of scowling when I don't I don't think he was. Look, we've talked a lot about the personal stuff, which I think is is always important uh, to remember and a nice thing to remember this week. But I'm of course, people will also be interested particularly since you got to know him in the last few years um, of what his attitude was to the current uh, members of the American administration and particularly Donald Trump. Yes well um, that was a, a constant source of frustration <laughs> because I think one of the things about him that made him really different was that even though he could he could have a quite harsh judgment on certain things if he felt they were clearly wrong. Like he had no tolerance for sort of people he felt were overpaid and you know enriched themselves at the expense of their customers or the public or or you know who corrupted institutions. But he he was he was in other in many other respects this incredibly pragmatic and this incredible surge tolerant person. So he he wanted to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. So as much as you know I and I know other people were trying to kind of get him to come out and you know, cast strong views on the situation. I think, you know, he served under six presidents. He served under Nixon. He served under, you know, LBJ and Kennedy. He'd seen a lot of things. And so he was patient in a way that not many people are. Um, I do know that at the end, um, and, you know, he worked with me on a afterword for the paperback version of his book, he he expressed more concern about the state of the world you know because in his book in the book he um he talked about how you know his mother had admonished him that things can look bad but this country has gotten through a lot and will continue to be okay 
but he wasn't so sure he believed that anymore. He he was very concerned about those sort of forces of, you know, that were just sort of out there fighting facts, fighting science, you know, um, just, you know, with seemingly no concern about the good of the country and of humanity. And um, so, you know, he didn't like to name names, um, but he... I think he was very un, very displeased at at what he sees going on in the country, and I'll also say, you know, he was he was quite a fan of of the Fed, but he was very disappointed in how they watered down the Volcker rule in the last couple months. He had sent a letter to Jay Powell warning him not to do that, and they went ahead and did that, and he was not happy about that. He thought that was a big mistake. Yeah, the rule the rule that had been uh, the response to the global financial crisis kind of constrain uh, strain banks from taking excessive uh, risks. Well, Christine, thank you very much. I mean, I think that the, the overriding conclusion and when you read all these obituaries is what a consummate public servant he was. And I certainly hope um, that one of these days those kind of public servants will um, will come back into favor. Yes, I think that's more than anything <laughs> what he wanted his legacy to be is as an example for other people to follow into public service and into really believing that it was a noble calling because he he certainly felt it was. We shall see. Christine, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis through the week from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at MyStephanomics. The story in this episode was written and reported by Swansea Afonso and Aniban Nag. It was edited by Bruce Douglas and produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Special thanks to Abhishek Gupta, Christine Harper and Nasreen Siria. Scott Lamman is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.